you're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Hello and welcome everyone to the Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me again today. This is your host, Dan Darling, and we have a wonderful new guest in store for you to talk about missions, to talk about evangelicals in America and what our posture should be. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my new book coming out. It's called Agents of Grace. It drops on May 9th, but you can pre-order it now. I want to urge you to do that. Please uh, pre-order the book. It just kind of gives a signal to publishers and others that there's a lot of interest in it. So if you're going to order the book, please pre-order from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of your retailers that you love, love Christian book. Go into a bookstore and get it as well. This book is maybe the most personal book I've written. I talk a little bit about some of the things I've endured. I talk about growing up in the evangelical church and not being mad about it, believe it or not. Really about forgiveness, about Christian unity, about what what love requires for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what are the things worth fighting for? And what are the things worth being open-handed about? What are the worthy fights that we should take up? So I hope you get it. I'm going to actually have a sample of the audio book here that you'll be able to listen to in a few minutes that you'll get sort of a sample of what I'm trying to do here. I want to urge you to get that. Okay. My next guest is Dr. Matt Bennett. Uh, Dr. Matt Bennett is an assistant professor at Cedarville University in uh, Cedarville, Ohio. He teaches missions and theology there. In uh, 2017, he, he joined uh, the faculty. Uh, before that, he was a missionary in North Africa and the Middle East for six years. And I always think it's really good for us, those of us who live and work and do ministry in America, to really get a perspective of someone who has been outside the United States for some time and now has come back, uh, just to give us kind of that perspective of what America is like as a mission field. And one of the things I like about him is he talks about the way that we can treat America in terms of our hospitality, our approach to uh, missions here, contextualization, all of those things. He he also discusses the sometimes divide between the pragmatism of missions and the importance of theology. Sometimes you have people who say, yeah, we don't need a lot of theology. We just need to go out there and really reach people for Christ. You have other people that say, you know, theology is the most important thing. And and really, the Bible doesn't divide those two. And I don't think we should either. So it's a really important conversation. What I love about him is he really has hope for evangelicals. In fact, that's the title of this book, Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. Anybody that says they're hopeful about American evangelicals, I want to listen to because I agree with him. And I, one of the things you'll see in my book, Agents of Grace, you'll see that I, I'm not cynical. And I'm not pessimistic about the church. I think God is doing a great work in our generation. So anyways, before we talk anymore, let's get to our wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Matthew Bennett, talking about missions here in the homeland. I'm glad to have on the podcast, Dr. Matt Bennett from Cedarville University. Matt, I think this is the first time I've had you on. So glad to have you on here. And thanks for joining the podcast. 
No, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We talk about a number of things. You you teach uh, theology at Cedarville, but you have a really interesting new book out called uh, Hope for American Evangelicals, uh, which is a pre- pretty ambitious title, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. I love I love the framing and and everything. So I first want to just ask you, you know, what was kind of stirring in your heart and mind to, to write this book? Yeah. So uh, my family and I spent about seven years serving uh, in North Africa and the Middle East as missionaries, uh, just have absolutely been formed and shaped by our time there, not only by the the skills and things that we needed to learn to do cross-cultural living and communication, but also by the incredible opportunity to rub shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ living in much harder circumstances there in the Middle East and have just been shaped and challenged and convicted through those experiences um, in ways that are they've just left an indelible mark on the way that we see the world. When I came back to take this teaching role, part of the part of the reason for it was that man, I just I had so appreciated my time in seminary, but oftentimes found myself sitting in classes where we would do theology or missiology. And the two didn't always overlap. And when we got to the field, we saw at various times, I mean, uh, this is not an across-the-board critique, but in, in various places, we saw people who were uh, driven there by urgency and loved people and longed to see the gospel take root in places, but uh, some of that urgency had maybe untethered them from their theological moorings. So pragmatism and what works kind of ruled the day. But then we also considered some of the conversations that we had in theology classes that felt like maybe they hadn't quite finished the task of theologizing because they would present these conclusions about who God is and and what his world is and where it comes from and what it means to be human and all these things, but then sometimes stopped short of asking the so what? What does this send us to do question and how does this relate to missions? And so I came back with with a heart burdened for being able to unite those two disciplines more naturally mm. um, to ground our missiology and good theology, but then also to prompt our theology to emerge in missiology. And that's really been what uh, the Lord has been so kind to allow me to to work at here at Cedarville. Uh, my, my job title itself is uh, to, to teach missions and theology together. And so in many ways, this, this book comes out of our return under these convictions as we've taken some of these missionary learned impulses and, and skills and tried to apply them in places that are more familiar than they are foreign. Yeah. I mean, you know, coming, looking at your home, like, uh, and this is sort of how the book is shaped, you know, like a home. And I love the way you arrange your chapters. We'll go through those in, in a second. But being able to kind of come back to your home with a fresh lens of being on a, on a in a different context, mission field, probably really gives you a, just a clearer perspective of some of the, you know, the the good and bad of uh, living in America as a faithful Christian. Some of the idolatries of the age and all of that. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of missionary folks who come back to America and it's actually, they say it's actually hard to live here just because of just the, it's such a different context coming back and the urgency and the need on the mission field is so great 
that you come back to America and you just feel a little bit maybe put off by American Christians, even though, you know, so anyways, just talk about that framing and kind of what that did for you, you know, coming back to this country and the church in America and sort of the fresh set of lenses. Yeah. My, my hope for this book is, is really nested there in the title is that I'm coming back not as one who has a whole bunch of critiques necessarily to levy against the American church as somebody who's somehow figured it out because of my, you know, cultural savvy and, and global Christian mindedness. The reality is most of these chapters as I was writing them uh, are reflections on things that I've continued to struggle with as I've reintegrated back home uh, ways of living and viewing the world that are things that were part of the water of, uh, of the American culture uh, and American evangelicalism that still feel familiar after seven years removed. And now having some of those, uh, those missionary lenses, I'm finding myself, yes, addressing some of the hot button issues in the, the church external to myself, but the critique is unfortunately still landing on my own heart. And so in some ways, as we go chapter by chapter through some of these hot button issues of, uh, of uh, where, where we're attending to issues in the American church, um, I'm not a dispassionate observer or I'm not somebody who's casting aspersions from without, but I'm one who's uh, feeling the, the challenge of living out a fully orbed gospel story in ways that are going to contrast with what I know is normal. So the, the yeah, motif of the book, uh, the, just real quick, the motif of the book is uh, envisioning my return to my childhood home after having been gone for about six years for college, but doing so in an effort to try to get it ready for sale. And so I'm looking at spaces that were very familiar to me. Um, I have tons of nostalgia invested in them. And yet by putting on the lenses of somebody who would be considering it for purchase for themselves, who don't have years and years of familiarity and a sense of buy-in to the space and uh, that, that mm-hmm. nostalgic allure, I'm wanting to say, how do we look at some of those things that were always there but if we're going to if we're going to allow the house to display its most natural beauty for somebody considering it for the first time, how do we do that? Mm, I like that, and I like the way it's framed. You know, sort of walking through the living room and the kitchen, and 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 as a way of kind of introducing topics that way. I also like the fact that you see hope for American evangelicals. I think there's so much. One of the things I've one of the things I've lamented in the last few years is just there's so much negativity, so much cynicism about evangelicals, about American evangelicals, about the church. It's almost become a cottage industry to just say, like, if you have any hope for the American church, you're hopelessly naive or something wrong with you. And I like the fact that you see hope forward and that there's a way forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially with the the idea of evangelical. I mean, that's been a word that's been debated as to whether or not it's useful any longer because of some of the associations with truly lamentable elements that have come out of the evangelical world. But I mean, if we if we pare it down to what evangelical uh, initially meant and and distinguished from general Protestantism, kind of the 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 bare bones uh, Bebbington. <laughs> definition of saying we're a people who are formed by the 
authoritative scriptures. We're people who are convinced that Christ is the only way to salvation and that his cross invites individuals to repent and believe and to find new faith and that that emerges in a, an activism of gospel application to every sphere of life. And those are those are redeemable things that we need to be not just kind of letting the the baby wash out with the bathwater, but rather saying, can we take some of the critiques that have been surfaced, attend to them, lament them, but then also uh, rebuild um, and and remodel so as to be able to put the gospel and its whole biblical story on beautiful display uh, for a watching world that desperately needs to hear uh, a, a contrast way of viewing the world from what's on offer in the culture. We'll be right back with our guest, but right now I'd like you to listen to a sample chapter of my book, Agents of Grace. I'm writing to say that God is still at work in the world and to say that Christian love and spiritual unity are still worth pursuing. While I've been hurt by Christians, I've also been immensely blessed by Christians. Brothers and sisters in Christ have been there for me in my pain. Single mothers who made meals when my wife endured a serious illness. Small group leaders who gave me money when I was suddenly unemployed and scared. A pastor who called and preached the word of God to me when I was in despair. I've been blessed by wise matriarchs with arthritic knees who called on spiritual fire from heaven on my behalf when I was weak. I've been healed by friends who left everything and came to my side when I needed hope. Thank you for listening to the sample chapter of Agents of Grace. As a reminder, you can get this book anywhere books are sold. You can go to my website, danieldarling.com, for more information. But for now, let's rejoin our conversation on the Way Home Podcast. I love the way you frame the chapters. You know, the first one is coming home, a fresh look at the familiar. And you sort of describe that frame. And then you've got our home and its hood, contextualization and a familiar landscape. Our dining room, talk about diversity and embodied apologetic living room, theology, divorce from real life. Then our bedroom, talk about sexual ethics and uh, our yard, our address. We can talk about our citizenship. And then, you know, in in conclusion, kind of the missionary nature of the church. I just love the way that is framed Um, because I think there's a tension, Matt, in. Um, and one of the things I've talked about when I've talked to college students or talked to, to pastors about this, even when we're talking about how to steward our citizenship or what does it look like to live in America, on the one sense, as First Peter says, we're strangers and exiles, right? Because this world is not our our home in the sense that the world system is sort of, you know, run by the prince and power of the air that, you know, it's a world system that is against the things of God. On the other hand, you know, we think of Jeremiah 29, where we should seek the welfare of our cities. And this is the context and the setting and the place God has put us. So talk about, if you will, to to faithful Christians who are listening, who are saying, how do I balance this well? How do I live in that tension where this is the home and place God's put me? God's called me to America in 2023. He's not called me to another place another time. And yet I also have to be set my affection on things above, as it says, as Paul writes in uh, Colossians. Yeah, that's great. And that, that really dovetails into the 
the the bedrock of what I was trying to do in this in this book was uh, in inviting readers who may not be familiar with the writings of a guy named Leslie Newbegin uh, to consider mm-hmm. some of his contributions uh, because Leslie Newbegin is a guy who spent 40 years on the mission field and then had a second career of writing and teaching and pastoring back in England uh, in the late uh, 20th century and some of his writings I tried to incorporate because he he was somebody who grew in his capacity to identify idolatry and to uh, recognize where the the biblical story and biblical commands, biblical worldview comes into conflict with the worldview um, and, and ethos of life in India, but then realized when he returned back home that those antenna he had developed for identifying where idolatry was taking place were picking up the same sorts of idolatries in forms that he grew up with in the churches that he didn't previously identify as idolatry or brokenness. And one of the big things that Newbegin says over and over is that the church is both a church in a place and for a place. And as he unpacks that, there's just a real richness to his his missionary vision of saying the church is to be that contrast people who are living out a new kingdom reality in the midst of the old kingdoms of the world. And so within the boundaries of the church, the, the believers, the redeemed are seeking to ever refine their own understanding of who God is and who they are in, in and before their God, and how then that's challenging them to ever refine some of their, uh, some of their values, their hopes, their dreams, and their way of expressing what it means to be a kingdom people. But they do that in that gathered state to use maybe some of the more Kuyperian terms, but then they also scatter into the various places and spaces in their communities that that they are sent to throughout the week with an intention of still being that alternative kingdom people. And that is that is a means in which every sphere of the public square is to be infused with Christians who are seeking to live out this other kingdom allegiance, primary allegiance in the kingdoms of this world in ways that are for that community. And I think the beauty of Newbegin is um, he's not calling for a an attractivism uh, in his approach to ecclesiology, where he's not trying to lower the bar to make it attractive, but he's actually recognizing that the biblical storyline is always going to be challenging the first and foremost, the the redeemed who are part of that kingdom community, to be paring away those parts of their culture that may have some traces or roots of cultural idolatry still in them, so as to more purely and fully put on display what it looks like to live according to King Jesus's rule. And what that does then is as the people scatter and persist in that King Jesus allegiance as primary, uh, they do show and tell another way of living in the world that challenges some of the implicit idolatries and the places where people are either consciously or subconsciously placing their greatest hopes for fulfillment. To be people who are for that place uh, means that in every sphere of life, in all of the public square, 
We are to be embodying those kingdom principles in a way that is going to contrast and at times conflict, but always is going to be something that is presenting a compelling allegiance to something that has a settledness to it in where our hopes and dreams are. Uh, when you when you ask about like some of the political things, I think what that looks like is being invested in the public square, being invested in making Christianly informed voting decisions and being engaged in local government and, and things of that nature, but never vesting our, our deepest hopes in the political system as what's going to bring change, but rather functioning as those who recognize that we serve a kingdom whose foundations have already been established and a king who has already conquered. And so whatever the, the kingdoms of this world end up doing, that is not where our primary sets of hopes are. Yet we work under those marching orders that, that give us confidence that there's a greater authority than what the earthly kingdoms can provide. I'm glad you said that because I think, you know, some people think a missionary mindset means that we sort of withdraw into ourselves and we don't we don't engage um, or steward our citizenship well. And and look, you know, I've said this, that every every person has a different calling, right? So some have a calling to be more engaged in others in terms of the political process or, or all those things. But it's hard for me to see how we can love our neighbors ourselves if we don't take the opportunity to shape the communities that are our neighbor lives in. If I could give maybe one example that kind of gets yeah. down in the dirt of our uh, of our contemporary setting, the the chapter on sexuality touches on some of these issues, particularly as it pertains to uh, both that outside of the church uh, impact, as well as some of the ways that inside the church there might still be some residue of some of our our cultural idolatry. Obviously, when we talk about the the LGBTQ. Uh, discussions, and we recognize that uh, most of those discussions are taking a biblical or taking a, a sexual ethic that runs roughshod against the the biblical injunctions. And people who would be uh, promoting a certain uh, autonomy, self expression, self fulfillment that can be gained through these non biblical and anti biblical actions, uh, seeking a satisfaction to their, their sexual appetite in ways outside of the bounds of scripture. And those expressions are the things that oftentimes draw our attention and draw our consideration. And we, we sometimes, I mean, in this day, Carl Truman's book opens up with the, the question, uh, how did we get to a world in which the, the statement, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body makes sense, and then goes on to detail that. Well, sometimes we, we remain on the superficial, and uh, we rightly uh, stand for a, a biblical sexual ethic and, and do these things in ways that we should, and we should persist in maintaining a biblical sexual ethic and, and standing firm in those things. But we fail to trace down into what are the most fundamental roots of some of these uh, some of these communities, what are they actually asking for? At a worldview level, what are the expectations that they hope to find satisfied in some of this sexual expression? And in many ways, it just traces down to that fundamental American expectation that sexual fulfillment is ultimate fulfillment. That if I can find that brand, that type, that 
unique expression of, uh, of sexual gratification that I'm going to find some sort of ultimate fulfillment. And that traces back even to just general, uh, general American understanding of sexuality that allowed us to match in some of our advertising campaigns a sports car with a scantily clad woman. I mean, really, there's, there's no relation between those two things except the marketing recognition that people actually believe that their deep satisfaction is to be met in some sort of a, a sexual encounter, sexual expression. And so it's right for us to recognize where society is, is pushing against a biblical ethic and to, to stand firm, um, to, to teach according to biblical standards. But we haven't finished the task when we've done that if we haven't traced down to some of those primary idolatrous lies that our, our culture is trying to find a, an ultimate satisfaction in sexual expression. Those are the things that if we, if we spend time with our neighbors who are of an LGBTQ plus persuasion, those sorts of questions are going to be far more powerful to tracing down like, what, what is it that you are looking for? And then beginning to ask a que- answer some questions from a biblical perspective that's saying, more than just saying what you can and can't do with your body, we're talking about what are we for? And whether heterosexual or homosexual, whether transgender or, or any variety here, we're for something more substantial than sex and sexual fulfillment. But I think looking in at the church, we haven't always put on display a lived confidence that that's actually true. In, in many ways, we've traditionally done a good job of upholding the biblical sexual ethic. We've, we've put a, a hedge of biblical barriers around where sex is appropriate and where, where it is not. But at times, we've smuggled in that same idolatrous expectation that if it is, if it is pursued within biblical bounds, that those whispered promises of the culture that sexual fulfillment is ultimate fulfillment can still remain. And we're still searching for the same idolatrous fulfillment in sex, but we've just baptized it with some biblical sexual ethical boundaries to say, don't have sex until you're married, but once you're married, then you can be fulfilled, fully fulfilled. And I I trace that back to even an impulse in myself, thinking back to my childhood where I used to pray like, Lord, I, I want you to come back, but can you please wait to come back until after I'm married? And the, the assumption in that, you know, it's a, it's a good chuckle in some ways that probably a lot of junior high guys can relate to in some ways. But if you peel back the layers of that prayer, it's really ugly. It's me praying that the Lord would hold off the consummation of the ages because I believe that the consummation of my marriage is going to be more fulfilling or that the consummation of the ages will be less fulfilling if I haven't had this, this promised fulfillment within the bounds of, of marriage. And that, that tees me off to saying if we're to live a contrast, uh, contrast kingdom type way of living, we actually need to be able to show that the idolatrous promises that our culture is desperately trying to fulfill themselves with can't deliver. We need to show a better hope than one that just simply puts a hedge of biblical injunction around an idol of misdirected 
misdirected satisfaction. So one more question, Matt, before we go that I, I, I really like your, your book and I hope people get it. It's called Hope for American Evangelicals. A gospel that requires self-sacrifice does not get airtime in a world of self-comfort. This is a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. Really encourage folks to get this. We'll have links to it in the show notes published by B&H. Matt teaches theology and uh, missions at Cedarville, and I love how you wed the two together. I want to I want to end just with I, th- I believe it's your second chapter. You talk about contextualization, and 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 you know there's conversation among Christians among evangelicals about this for many years. But what is proper contextualization? On the one hand, you know, don't be like the world. We don't want. You know, the Bible says, if you're friends with the world, you're en- enmity with God. We don't want to, sh- we don't want to let the world shape our liturgy and shape our worship. On the other hand, as missionaries, you know, whether you're a missionary overseas or a missionary in your home context, God is calling us to live in and among people so that we can share the gospel with them. And our churches should reflect that. W- what does that look like as we're as we're thinking about contextualization? Yeah, yeah. So I I put contextualization firmly in the realm of an issue of communication. Sometimes the the conversation gets dodgy when we start understanding contextualization as accommodation, trying to go to a culture and say, you know, what can we kind of say? Well, there's some there's some similarity already there, so we'll keep this and try to make a, a Christian expression that's already pre-existing using what are oftentimes non-biblical, sometimes anti-gospel religious categories. Um, and we start thinking at the level of expression as to what can you retain in, in forms that are already recognizable, and, and we fail to... Uh, start with the the communication aspect of contextualization, and at its at its most basic uh, level, what we're asking is how do we make sure that what we are saying and what we are presenting and what we are doing is in fact communicating to a new community what the biblical message is. So you've got an unchanging message, but dynamic and changing situations and circumstances. For instance, I mean, if, if I went into a conversation with a Muslim friend and I read to them 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, this message that Paul says is of first, first and utmost importance that he received and passes along about the, the death of Jesus according to the scriptures for our sins, his resurrection and his appearance to 500 people. They might understand the words that I say. Uh, they might understand what I'm talking about uh, if I'm using Arabic to to talk with them. They they understand those sentences, but the most important words in those sentences for our sins, according to the scriptures, Jesus the Christ. Those words are words they have, but they're freighted with Islamic and uh, Quranic baggage. And so if I'm actually to communicate the biblical message, I need to be attentive to the fact that sin in an Islamic mind is a different concept, even though it uses the same word. And so I need to do some extra work to be able to frame that language with the biblical meaning and story. So I I have to become attentive to the the culture 
and its forms, its language, in order to actually be able to make sure that I'm communicating something that's not distorted by pre-existing forms or language in that culture. So that's fine and good in Arabic, but then when you come back home and you're speaking the language you grew up speaking, it's a whole lot easier to assume that the other people around you use the language the way you do in exactly the same way. And so you don't have as much of a impulse at times to clarify the words that you're using because you assume that they're shared. But I mean, take the example of the word love. I mean, it's hard to actually present uh, a full and robust gospel without using the language of love in, in English. But in an American context, to use the word love, we have to realize that the culture has assigned very different and broader understandings of what love is and how you define what love is in contrast to hate. And many of the things that we would be holding out that are evidence of God's love, his giving of his law, his orderly uh, call to live in the grain of the world that he has created for his glory is actually going to present some instructions that are going to look like what our culture is going to categorize as hate. And even just the giving of instructions, the functioning of a divine authority is not something that we would uh, in our culture typically assign the language of love. And so we have to become conversant with what are the words that our culture is using and has used in such a way that it has, uh, it no longer reflects a biblical understanding. And so we need to be helpfully going back and saying, hey, when I say this word, when I say love, when I say forgiveness, when I say salvation, when I say eternity, when I say purpose, this is what I mean by it. And it's informed by, by the biblical storyline, not by the way that you use that. Because we use love to talk about pizza, we use love to talk about family members, and we use love to say love is love. And all of those things are demonstrating some, some flexibility in what is actually freighted in that language. So that when we read God is love, we have to realize there's some, there's some clarifying work that the Bible and its categories need to do for us so that we see this type of love as something distinct from those very vast spectrums of usage um, on offer in the culture. Mm, that's really good. Man, I appreciate you being on here with me on the podcast. Matthew Bennett, author of Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. It's got forward by my good friend, Trevin Wax. Y'all should go and order that from your favorite retailer. Matt, thanks for joining me today and thankful for all the great work you're doing there at Cedarville. I'm grateful for you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. Podcast.